Well, this morning, we meet a migrant. He's a stranger. He's from a foreign land. He's a man who had his own family, his own home, great wealth. He even had his own gods. But then everything changed. He became a dad. He became a father to two sons and then a father to a nation. And one distant day, one would be born to rescue that nation from the line of this man. This morning, we meet a man named Abraham. Consistently, the Bible points to the faith of Abraham. He's an example or or a standard for righteousness and for faithful trust in God. But this morning, I want us to see past that. I want us to see the God who stands behind that, the God who stands behind Abraham. You see, the life of Abraham teaches us not only about faith, but it teaches us about God. Our God is a God who delivers God delivered Abraham. At at times, it doesn't feel as though God may be that way. It may feel at times as though God's timing is not what we wish it was. But God does deliver. And that is the message of the Bible time and time again. God delivers. And I think we may even find from our own life experience that it is true. God delivers. This Deliverance of God is a combination of his mercy as he looks down and sees need among his people. It involves his love. God loves his people and has compassion on them. It's even a testimony to his faithfulness that God keeps his word. He keeps his word and he delivers his people. Taken all together, God delivers. And this morning, I want to make a case for that from the life of Abraham. We'll explore three aspects of God's divine deliverance. And we'll pick up this morning in Genesis chapter 11. Now, we left off there last time. We're moving out of the account of Noah into the account of Abraham. This account stretches for about 11 chapters, roughly chapters 12 through 22. We'll be doing some skipping around this morning. This first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, so far has been moving along pretty good. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 has covered thousands of years. But this morning it slows down and the camera zooms in. Now covering the lives of men like Abraham and Jacob and then Joseph. I want to begin with God's freedom to deliver. It's our first point this morning. God is free to deliver. His freedom to deliver. Now, back in chapter 10, we learned how God repopulated the earth. Remember, it was wiped out by flood. And from three sons, the three sons of Noah, every nation upon the globe would repopulate. And they gather at a place called Babel. They attempt to unite there. They want to make a name for themselves. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a minute. But God scatters them, and he confuses their language. 
And they've proven what we already know, what we've read in the Bible. There is none who seeks for God. None of these nations are looking for God. They're not obeying God. No nation fears God. So God creates his own. In chapter 11, we receive a genealogy. Verse 27, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Now there's three people to note in this genealogy. First is Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. When Lot's father died, Haran, he came into the care of his grandfather, Terah. When Terah died, he came into the care of Abraham. we'll We'll learn more about Lot in just a moment, but we will see that he seems to get himself entangled in nasty messes. The second person here to note is Sarai. She's the wife of Abraham. Her name's going to be changed to Sarah, so as you hear that name, Sarah and Sarai, it's the same person, they're one and the same. Same thing will happen to Abraham. Notice in our text so far, he's called just Abram. Abram means the father is exalted. Thinking about that from a Christian perspective or a biblical worldview, that may not mean what we hope it means. Some believe this name came from his former religion. Abram, after all, was a pagan. He lived in Ur. He and his father would have been worshipers of a moon cult. Now, if you think about a modern-day map, this location for Abram, his home, would have been near Kuwait in modern-day Iraq, about 125 miles from the border. In summary, he's about as far from the promised land as he is from God at this point. So Abram is over there. He's not worshiping God. He's not looking for God. He's not obeying God. But God, in his own free choice, came to Abram. And your eyes can scan all the names of chapter 10, and you can read the names of chapter 11, But God did not call them. He called Abram, an idolater named Abram. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. 
and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose to make a covenant, an agreement of promise with this man named Abram. Now, God has more to say about this covenant in the chapters to come. In chapter 12, it's almost as though the door has opened a bit. Some light is coming in. The door will open further as we learn more about this covenant. Chapter 13, then 15, then 17. But in summary, God has given a a covenant of land and seed and blessing to Abram. Every nation needs land, does it not? And God promises this to Abram. Later in chapter 15, verse 18, he'll even give him dimensions from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. And he'll list 10 nations that are presently in existence. They will become Abrams. They're all in the land of Canaan. What else does a nation need? People. A nation needs land and a nation needs people. Well, God promises descendants. This had to be a real head-scratcher for Abram. Remember, back in chapter 11, verse 30, his wife Sarai was barren, unable to conceive or have children. How's Abram going to have descendants? God will double down on this. He'll do it by speaking of dirt and stars. Chapter 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Chapter 15, verse 5, look toward the heavens, he says to Abram. Count the stars if you are able, so shall your descendants be. The nation of Israel, God's elect nation, she would come from Abram. Well, lastly, God promises blessing. And it'd be through Israel that God would bless the world. Later, God would give us the new covenant. And it would come through a man born in the line of Abram. And the deliverance that he would be, bring would be for all people, for all who believe upon him. Now, we should also note that there's more to this covenant than land, seed, and blessing. It has certain marks or certain characteristics. This is a big covenant, especially in Old Testament history. This covenant that God gives is unconditional. It comes without conditions. It's completely based on God. Chapter 12, five times in three verses, God says, I will. It's dependent upon God. It's not dependent upon Abram. God takes the initiative. He chooses Abram. He supplies Abram. This covenant, secondly, is everlasting. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants throughout generations for an everlasting covenant. This covenant is commemorated. In our English Bibles, we often read of God making a covenant. In Hebrew, it's better translated, cut a covenant. Ancient covenants became binding with an animal sacrifice. Uh, An animal was divided in in halves, and it became official when that happened. Now, thankfully, in our day, we no longer have to do this. Some auto dealers trying to cut a covenant with you keep moving on. We cut a deal now. We don't cut a covenant. But in chapter 15, again, it's God himself who passes through the pieces 
A variety of animals have been cut, sacrificed. God passes through them to ratify that covenant. Abraham's sleeping at the time. God chose to obligate himself to Abram and to the people that would come through him. Well, finally, this covenant is established. In chapter 17, God advances things again. There he's going to change Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, the meaning of names was significant. And what's interesting about this is that Abraham takes this name on, meaning father of a multitude. And he does this before even having one child. That's the planning of God. That's the wisdom of God. It's the promise of God made to Abram. And he's going to go on and give Abram a sign for the covenant. Chapter 17, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and between you. The male would receive a permanent mark. You'll notice here that women were not assigned a mark or assigned a sign. There's different reasons or different views why that was. Some believe it was due to the patriarchal structure of the society. But others believe it had to do with marriage. And that the man and the woman would come together and the man would bear the mark for the both of them. They're both under the covenant with God. So God chose Abraham, and he made a covenant with him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, I want you to see what God has done for you. The New Testament will fill this in. In a similar way, God chose you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He did this while you lived in your own land of Ur. Wherever that was, whatever you were doing, God set his love upon you. God made a covenant with you. We call it a new covenant. By faith in the gospel, you've received a new heart and a new mind. You've received forgiveness of sin. You've received the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus secured this by shedding his blood for you. Amen. He says the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So as you partake of that cup here this morning, you are proclaiming that all the benefits due to you through this new covenant, they're secured by Christ, and they are, in fact, yours. It's part of what we do when we take the Lord's Supper together. You received circumcision. In the New Testament, circumcision of the heart replaced circumcision of the flesh. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, in Christ were you also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is to say you have a permanent mark on your soul that you forever belong to God. Irrevocably, eternally, it is the Lord who does these things. He does them freely. 
God delivers. Secondly, I want you to see that God is faithful to deliver. God is faithful to deliver. He delivers us from sin. Now, in this second portion, I want us to see God's goodness through the life of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Abraham is connected to this second point, in fact, but I want us to see this through a man named Lot. Now, at the outset, we mentioned that Lot seems to get himself into some nasty messes, and this is true. In chapter 13, he and Abram are in the land, this land God had promised Abram, and things are starting out well enough. Look at verse 2. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Verse 5. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So far, so good. The result, though, verse 6, the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great. So Abram has to say, Lot, we need more room. We need to separate. We need to go in different directions. Take your pick. Now, here's where things get dicey. There are some clues that are lying just below the surface of this account. And they're going to read a bit like that storm that you, you know is in the distance. Maybe you see the dark cloud on the horizon or you can smell the rain. It hasn't yet arrived, but you know it's coming. Verse 11, Lot journeyed eastward. Now, so far in the book of Genesis, east has not been a good direction. When Cain left the presence of the Lord, he went east. When the Tower of Babel went up on a plain, that location was discovered by heading east. Lot journeys east. And as he does this, he removes himself as an heir to the promises. In chapter 13, verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. In other words, Lot settles outside the promised land. And God is about to use Abraham to rescue Lot, first from capture and then from death. God is faithful to deliver. He is faithful to deliver Lot from captivity. There's a war that breaks out. Lot's kidnapped. This is a result of him choosing to make his place near a town called Sodom. In chapter 14, verse 11, one faction of kings comes along and defeats another faction. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Well, Abram catches wind of this. At this point, the Bible calls him Abram the Hebrew. Now we're starting to attach this notion of descendants and nation to the name of Abram. Almost out of instinct, Abram reacts. He counterattacks. This is a night attack. We would call it a strategic risk. He's dividing his forces. But in the end, there's victory. Abram is quite capable of winning a battle, and he delivers his nephew Lot. 
Well, Lot got himself in a stickier situation. In Genesis 18 and 19, tell the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities come to stand for all that is wicked. The Lord, along with two others, we learn later that they're angels, come to visit Abraham. Following a meal, the Lord speaks to Abraham. This is chapter 18, verse 20. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Later in the Bible, in the book of Ezekiel, there's a record of her sin. Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Social injustice, but you and I will soon see there's more to it than that. Well, Abram's concerned. Well, this God who has called me, this God who I now serve, is he the God who wipes out the righteous with the wicked? And he begins a debate. Lord, what if there are 50 righteous? Or 40? Or 30? Or 20? Or 10? At this point, Abram exits the story and Lot enters. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. They need to know that the town gate is a very important place. This is where the big decisions of the day are made. Leaders would be there, local influencers. This is where you gather to do business. And Lot, obviously a gracious host, he's happy to invite in these strangers. He insists they come to his home and that they they bunk with him. Verse 2, he's washing feet. Verse 3, he's cooking dinner. We're talking five-star quality. This is a tremendous experience of hospitality in the ancient Near East. Then, a knock at the door. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Well, the great sin of Sodom now comes into focus. Evidently, word spread of the presence of these two men, not only that they were in town, but that they were residing in the home of Lot. One sick whisper after another. You notice in these verses that it's a generational sin. All ages are affected by it. All ages are in on it. Nighttime arrives. They surround the house. Lot must think fast. Lust has little patience, and depravity has no delay. Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. His language betrays his heart. He believes he's in. He believes he's one of them. He calls them brothers. And his offer reveals the influence that this town has had upon him, the impact Sodom has had upon Lot. I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. 
Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Lot reaches a, a new low. The mob outside rejects him. The mob outside rejects his offer. They say in verse 9, stand aside. This one came in as an alien and already he's acting like our judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. Lot is out of options. Lot is not delivering himself from this situation. With the screams of the mob outside, with banging on his door, Lot needs help. He's a lot of help. His life is in danger and he can't seem to, to part ways with the wicked. In verse 10, the angels drag him back inside the house. Later in verse 16, they drag Lot out of the city. In that verse, the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And if you know the rest of the story, as they fled with fire and brimstone raining down, his wife could not bear the loss. And she looked back for one final look, turning into a pillar of salt. And in God's holy wrath, he judged sin. But God also extended mercy, and he delivered Lot. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 7. If God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of sin. I wonder if you, like me, are surprised to read this analysis of Lot. Righteous. The Bible doesn't commend him as wise or spiritually mature, but it does call him righteous. Lot made bad decisions, but God delivered him and this morning, there may be some of you here among us who are in need of God's deliverance. There are people and places and things in your life that ought not to be. That you, like Lot, are called righteous by God. But there are things that are keeping you from living all of life for Christ. Perhaps your soul is tormented as his was. It's that weird combination of, of loving this place and loving these things, but knowing it's not right and being torn in two different directions. You have your foot planted in the faith, but another foot planted in the world. But if you are a Christian, you are a foreigner to them. You are an alien to that way of living. Good company destroys bad morals. That is not a verse in the Bible. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And as time wears on, you will become more and more like them than they will like you. And just to share a personal experience from my own life, I came to Saving Faith in spring of one year, and I call it the summer of sanctification. 
It's a bit of a misnomer because all of our lives, every year, is a sanctifying experience. But it was a rocky, rocky time for me. Because on one hand, I knew the Lord, and I had a foot planted in the faith, but I had another foot in the world. And I remember the end of that summer, God made it so clear that I would be done with those old ways of doing things. And he made it abundantly clear. They, they, they stopped through one very difficult weekend. God delivered me from it. That summer living with my soul in torment, knowing it's not right, knowing the things I was doing was wrong, but not, 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 not there yet, still delaying, still holding on, still living in a way in, in the Sodom. I want to encourage you this morning, if that is you, if you have one foot in each land, bring two feet over to the kingdom of God and do it today. Don't put God in a position where he needs to deliver you. Trust me, the compassion of the Lord is upon you, but it's much better. It's much less painful when we do that of our own accord, out of a gratitude for God's faithfulness, out of a gratitude for God's free choice of us. Well, lastly, we've seen here that God is faithful to deliver. We've seen that God is free to deliver. I want you to see how God is patient to deliver. Again, looking at who God is through the life of Abraham, he is both patient and timely in his deliverance. There's two episodes in Abraham's life that are going to teach this. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham journeys to Egypt. A famine struck the land. Abraham went south. He and Sarah head to Egypt. In verse 11, it came about when Abraham came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and I may live on account of you. You see that Abraham is concerned here that he's going to lose his life, and Sarah is going to continue to live. She's going to be taken. And sure enough, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was very beautiful, and Pharaoh took her into his house. But what he got was more than just Sarah. Verse 17, the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, Abraham would have lost her if not for the Lord. Pharaoh is going to put things together, add up two and two. He eventually boots them both out of his house and both out of the land of Egypt. What did Abraham learn from this? Genesis chapter 20. This follows the reduction of Sodom. Verse 1. Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Sur. And he journeyed in Gerar. Abraham said to his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Well, I think you know how things are going to go here. King Abimelech is going to put this together as well. And he's getting less than the complete truth from Abram. And we're even told how he figures it out. Verse 3, chapter 20. God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night. And said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. 
Do you ever have one of those nights where you can't fall back asleep? These are some sobering words from the Lord. And once again, this whole thing happens because Abraham fears for his life. And God strikes the king's house, but he will relent. Verse 18, the Lord closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In this account, it seems as though this pagan king is acting more righteously than Abraham. But God is very patient with Abraham. God is forbearing, long-suffering. Even when Abraham makes these bad decisions, even when he makes them again, what's God doing? He's abiding with Abraham. He is faithful to Abraham. He is teaching Abraham how to walk by faith. Even when these circumstances seem impossible, even with any scenario in these foreign lands where it almost as though uh, Abraham needs to come and help God, God is teaching him, and he's not giving up on him, and he's not abandoning him. I think personally, the greatest lesson Abraham will learn will concern his son. Remember, God promised Abraham a son. Maybe there's some confusion about how this would happen. It's kind of an odd promise. Again, his wife is barren, but God is so certain about this. He said it again in chapter 15. One who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And just to let you know, Abraham seems like he needs to help God again with this. Sarah's going to suggest Hagar. There was an ancient custom where uh, the, the, the maid of a barren woman could have a child and that child could be adopted into the family, almost as though it would be Abraham's biological heir. Well, Hagar gives birth to a son. His name is Ishmael. Long story short, this is not going to work out. They can't coexist, not, <clears throat> excuse me, not Ishmael and not the promised son and not Sarah and not Hagar. But in time... God always delivers in perfect time. God delivers a son. Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. What a great verse. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. It's God's perfect timing. A happy ending. Almost. The greatest test in the life of Abraham was about to come. Remember, Abraham had given up his old life, He'd given up his old land. All of his past he gave up for the Lord. Would he give up his future? God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go up to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. Abraham went. Isaac went. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you feel a knot in your gut? 
where you lose your appetite. You're so overcome with emotion. You have to go and do this thing. It's the very last thing you have to do. It's the very last thing you want to do. Your mind is completely consumed with this task at hand. I wonder how Abraham felt as they walked. If he's watching the back of his son, seeing the back of his head, recalling all the the fond memories that they formed over the years. I wonder what it was like watching him for what he thought would have been the last time. You know how sons often do. They assume many of the mannerisms of their father. Maybe Isaac walked like Abraham walked. Maybe he spoke like he did. Maybe he laughed the same way Abraham did. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand and the fire and the knife. And the two of them walked on together. We should note that Isaac's old enough to carry wood. He's old enough to ask good questions. Behold the fire in the wood. Where is the lamp for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. There's no argument here. There's no struggle. One wonders if Abraham's fighting to hold back tears. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, and God delivered. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son. God delivers. God delivers. This is a promise that is true for all who believe upon Christ. God delivers. And there are times in this life where we do not feel like God is going to deliver. There are times in this life where we feel like God is giving us up, that our obedience to God is simply resulting in more suffering, that we're living simply to be a sacrifice in some altar for God. And it is true in the Bible that God makes no promise to deliver us from hard things. And that it is always his divine decision to determine when to deliver and how to deliver. This is all up to God. But it also promises us that in the end, he will deliver. He is faithful to deliver, sometimes in this life, but always in the end, because God is a God who delivers. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? God gave us Jesus. Jesus was this lamb that God provided. Jesus carried his own wood, and he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for us. The Bible says that all who come to him will be delivered. No condemnation, no separation, no death. You see, this divine deliverance of God is an invitation to you this morning to die to your old self and to live for God, to live in new and exciting ways for the glory of God, to live a a meaningful life for Jesus Christ. God delivered you. Come, come to him and live as someone who's delivered. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, thank you for the wisdom of your divine deliverance. We trust your power and your sovereignty. We trust your timing and your wisdom. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for abiding with us. I pray for us this morning that we would receive your deliverance, that we would live with your grace, and that we would live in such a way that that shows that we have been delivered by your power, that our lives would point to you, a God who is so clearly alive, so clearly in control. May our lives be a sacrifice. I pray for us now as we prepare to, to go to the Lord's table that you would help our hearts to receive this grace you've given us, to remember all the fullness of the gospel and truths of the Bible that that they are ours as we take the bread and we take the cup. Oh, Father, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.